count the patience. These words struck my heart years ago and I knew the Spirit was teaching. They lifted from the pages in the final chapter of Peter's second letter. So I'm excited to share this message, which I believe is poignant for the season that we're part of. In terms of the context and the purpose of the letter, Second Peter was probably written a few years before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And this is sent to the same group of people as the first letter, sent primarily to Jewish believers in the dispersion, the diaspora, scattered throughout what, what we know today as modern-day Turkey. In this letter, though, it's addressed to those who have obtained the faith um, of equal standing with ours. So he's now including Gentiles who have uh, joined the Jewish believers. When Peter is writing this letter, he's anticipating his, his death, his imminent death. Jesus made it clear to him that he was going to suffer crucifixion just as Jesus did. And the last words of someone's life they're significant. And on top of that, if you knew that you were going to be crucified, would you not include things that really matter in your last words? I think so. The purpose of the letter uh, as a whole is twofold. It's first to warn against false teaching and secondly, to encourage spiritual growth. Now, if you've been tracking with me, you'll be aware that I believe the church, particularly in the West, is asleep right now. And uh, chapter three, which we'll focus on, contains spiritual truths that should snap us out of this lullaby. With the perversion of the gospel from within and the pushback of the gospel from outside, the bride is unprepared for the return of the groom. And what I want to propose today is that the day of the Lord will come and we should be counting the days with godly posture. Peter gives them a reminder of the basics in verse 1. He says this, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by a way of reminder. This is not new teaching. He's not doing a 101 online distance learning course. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. But he's been through this stuff with them, right? Over and over, breaking bread, doing life together. This isn't new information. Now, what should they bring back to the forefront of their minds? He says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Oh, the predictions of the prophets and the commandments of the Lord Jesus. He may as well be saying the Old Testament and the New Testament, not just your favourite gospel book stripped from the grand narrative. The predictions the predictions of the prophets and the commandment of the Lord Jesus. Which predictions? Well, about the cross for sure, but the context of the passage, as we will see, is fixated on the day of the Lord, the future return of Messiah. To remember the predictions of the prophets about that future day means we must know what they are. Now, for those who have been a Christian a while, you may be familiar with the words of the Lord, but I'm not sure we're all familiar with the predictions of 
the prophets. Now, thankfully, Peter, in writing this letter, in reminding them, opens a window for us to know uh, what is key to understanding the predictions, meaning the things that will happen, meaning the narrative that will play out. In verse 3, he begins to delve into the details. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. What will these scoffers say? They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. There are unbelieving scoffers and the unbelieving scoffers know there was a beginning and they know there is a creator to create creation. Otherwise, they couldn't say all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation, which sounds contradictory unless these unbelieving scoffers were attempting to use a biblical logic to throw it back in our face, which is possible. But I think Peter is saying there are those that deep down they know the truth, but they scoff because within their short lifetime, apocalyptic events have not taken place. Where is the promise of his coming? Well, if it came, you wouldn't be able to say that. Then there are believing scoffers, because who else believes there was a beginning and a creator, but also scoffs? believing scoffers. Now, I think Peter's main point here, his main target is unbelieving scoffers, but there are plenty of believers who scoff at a six-day creation, at Noah's Ark, at Babel, at the literal fulfillment of the covenantal promises, at the dramatic and apocalyptic day of the Lord. Now, Within the preterist camp, preterists are those who believe the vast majority of predictions of the prophets were fulfilled in the first century. Let me tell you, within this camp, I've seen it time and time again, preterists scoff at those who believe in the future fulfillment of the promises and predictions. They scoff. Right? Most of Europe actually holds an amillennial position, meaning they don't believe in the millennial reign of Christ when he returns. They scoff at it. Uh, scoffers can be uh, within and outside of the church. And Peter explains their approach. Scoffers, they overlook the grand narrative. Let's read uh, 5 uh, to, to 7. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Scoffers overlook the grand narrative. They deliberately deny. Scoffers choose denial. They are deliberate about overlooking the facts. Well, which facts? Peter indicates both creation and judgment. The book of Genesis and the book of Revelation and uh, Revelation coupled with the book of Daniel, they are the most attacked books of the Bible because they speak of the start of the story and the end of the story. It's the devil's strategy. If you can confuse the narrative from the start, 
the context of the cross will be warped. And then if you can add a twist of the knife at the conclusion, you have a well-formed lie. Peter is keen to set the record straight. He begins with the formation of the universe. Peter says that the universe was formed out of water and through water. This is key information informing our worldview, which um, I will look at in more detail soon enough. God created water, and with this inorganic, transparent, tasteless, odourless, and nearly colourless chemical substance, and which life is dependent upon, he formed the universe. And through this same substance, he judged life upon the earth. God baptised the earth to cleanse his creation, making it perish and then giving it new life. Scoffers laugh at at the word of God that says the globe was flooded. Scientifically impossible that the whole earth could have been flooded. Um, that's, what they, that's what they say, that's what they scoff. But actually, scientifically, it stacks up. The Bible says that the mountains were covered 15 cubits, which is about seven to eight meters deep. If the earth's surface was completely flat, there's enough water on the earth to cover it 8,000 feet deep. Well, what about Mount Everest, which is 29,000 feet? Well, it, it covered the topography of the pre-flood earth, after which the earth was radically different. The Himalayan range, the Alps, the Rockies, uh, the Appalachians, the Andes, they were raised up and valleys were then made low, which is why today on these mountains you can find ocean bottom sediments full of marine fossils. Climbers have discovered giant clamshells, giant clam fossils on the top of Mount Everest. And that makes perfect sense if you believe the word of God. But scoffers will deliberately overlook the facts. They overlook the flood and they, they gaze to the planet Mars, which is as dry as a bone, in, in large part at least. And they point to a canyon, which you can see on it, which um, is a huge canyon, much, much greater than the Grand Canyon. You can see it with the telescope. And I read an article that said this canyon on Mars was formed very quickly through massive amounts of water, fast flowing water. Well, yeah, Peter could have told them that. Mars was formed through water, yet they maintain that the Grand Canyon must have been a process of small amounts of water over millions of years. The Earth is nicknamed the water planet because the surface is 70% water, but they deliberately deny that the Grand Canyon was created rapidly by massive amounts of water because they don't want to leave credit for a global flood. They don't want to see what is before them, so they deliberately turn their blinkers towards a dusty planet that holds no life. The day of judgment will come. In overlooking the first global judgments, the scoffers are overlooking and unprepared for the second global judgment. Now, for clarity, when Peter says the earth is being stored up for fire, it does not mean the earth will, will be burnt and then destroyed and therefore we get transported to a new earth or, or even say to heaven. 
When the predictions of the prophets speak of a new heavens and a new earth, it means a radical renewal of the present one. The earth was stored up for the watery judgment and uh, it, it was renewed after the water receded. And in the same way, the earth is stored up and in his patience being kept or sustained until fire rains from heaven in what will be another year-long judgment similar to the flood. And then the great renewal of the heavens and earth will come under uh, the direct kingship of Jesus. Scoffers choose denial. Um, they, they choose denial of creation and judgment. They deny the grand narrative. Uh, Peter indicated that they know God created everything at some point in the past, but now they deliberately overlook the facts that God exists, that he created, that he judged in the flood that he will judge in the future because, as Peter defined, they are following their own sinful desires. Scoffers are not atheists in the true sense. They are idolaters. They choose the blindfold of sin. They want the story to be about them right? That's, that's what we all want it to be. That's why we have stories on our Instagram pages. We want the story to be about us. The story starts and ends with them. They want to be the alpha and omega, but the job is not available. So they're choosing to be stored up ready for fire in judgment at his return and in the lake that Jesus spoke of. Peter then turned his attention from unbelieving scoffers saying that we should not overlook the grand narrative as well. He says this in verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Who's he speaking to? Who's the beloved? We are. He's speaking to you and I, Christians. The scoffers overlook facts, but now he warns us not to overlook this one fact, Right? It must be an important fact. He is about to die and he's giving us a very important fact for us not to overlook. So hold on to your seats. He continues in verse 8. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. He's reflecting Psalm 90, which is, a prayer of Moses. And he's focusing on verse four that says this, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. And the verse that surrounds this speaks of the coming judgment of man. Now, I've heard people say, uh, I've heard people quote that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. Therefore, that proves God didn't create in six literal days. Well, if you follow that logic, did God create it in 6,000 years? No, of course not. That's not enough time to fit your evolutionary model. Uh, you have to keep reading and a thousand years as one day. Peter is making a point about the patience of God within his grand timeline. And he continues in verse 9 and 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing that any 
should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter is highlighting the patience of God towards mankind. Scoffers say, where is the promise of his coming? Because they count his patience as slowness. Though they scoff at God, now they scoff at us, but really their their scoffing is directed to God. He doesn't wish them to perish. When his promise comes, they will perish. But in his patience, he allows them to continue, giving them a chance to repent. None of us, none of us deserve to live more than a second longer under our own works, under our own strength. The day of the Lord will come like a thief to scoffers, not to us, right? We're believers who remember the teaching of the apostles. We remember Paul writing to the Thessalonians who said, but you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you like a thief. When the lion of Judah roars, roars, it will be frightening for some. Peter returns to counting and patience uh, and that one fact in a moment. But first he wants us to check our character because our character in some way should reflect the grand narrative. Verse 11 to 12, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? What we believe determines how we behave. Uh, Let's look at the the behaviour of scoffers for a moment. Take Noah. Imagine the scoffing Noah received. He's building a 500-foot wooden boat, right? He's likely hired scoffers to help him build this giant structure. They would be mocking him and his sons. Hey, Noah, you're going to attach wheels to this thing when it doesn't rain? You know, hey, oh, Noah, he's so intense. That Noah's so dramatic, so black and white. The rain's coming, Noah, woo! You know, like he's building something that you cannot miss. He was basically a street preacher with a 500 foot sign. You know, it would have been relentless scoffing that he received. Absolutely relentless. The scoffers deliberately overlooked the facts and their behavior reflected their framework of belief. They were casual about eternity. They acted as though they were bulletproof uh, or perhaps more fitting, drownproof. They never thought that they would be exposed to the flood waters. Then take the behavior of believers, right? Noah, on the other hand, he believed the word of God. He set about preparing for the coming judgment and salvation. Noah had a sense of urgency about him. There was this sense of holiness and godliness about him as he waited for and hastened the coming day. He must have pitied the scoffers, knowing that they were talking themselves underwater. He must have reached out to them, but they overlooked his preaching. We will be scoffed at by unbelievers and even some within the Christian camp. 
Uh, Peter tells us that the apostles held a framework of the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour, which points forward to the day of the Lord. Today, the mainstream church points to the cross and it remains at the cross, but the cross points forward to the day of the Lord. Peter told us in his first letter to set your hope fully, not a little bit, not half, fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Their daily cry was Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Fire awaits our friends, our family, neighbours, our colleagues, all who deliberately overlook the cross and salvation in Messiah. How much do we have to hate them to say nothing? That challenges me. Our character as believers should reflect the grand narrative. Urgency, holiness and godliness, waiting for his promise for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now we are going to count the patience of the narrative. To do that, Peter connects this challenge of, of godly character with a godly status and mindset before we begin. He says in, in, uh, in verse 14 this, Therefore, Beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Wow. In a world of global pandemic, rioting, protests, we are to be found at peace when he returns and in the present, in preparation of his return, at peace. Not blemished by a loose tongue, not spotted with angry outbursts, at peace, regardless of how fast that the world is spinning. If you're enraged or bitter, you will not sit at peace and therefore you will not have the right mindset to study the scriptures. When we strive for, for holiness and godliness, we will sit at peace and therefore be postured to count accurately. Here's the striking passage. Peter says something that struck me at such a deep level. Listen to this, verse 15 and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. He's asking us to count. Count what? Count the patience. What do we mean count the patience? the patience of our Lord as salvation. He's asking us to count the patience before his patience runs out. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, we're going to count it together. Now, first off, Peter, a first century Jew, said that some things that Paul writes are hard to understand. Now, that should encourage us, right? If you don't get it first read, don't worry, Peter didn't get it first read. 
when I first started to, to read the Bible, I was working my way through. And um, I said to myself, whenever I come across something that's really difficult, that's really hard to understand, I'm going to stop until I understand it. And only then will I continue on reading. Now, don't do that, right? That's bad wisdom, guys. You will not get very far before you have to put down the Bible. Now, it may be the case that you have to uh, read the whole thing maybe several times to build a bigger picture of the biblical narrative so that you can discern the meaning of, uh, of the text. Now, Equally, what we don't do is we don't twist the scriptures to make it fit what you want it to say. This is a serious offence that uh, may end in your destruction. Now, moreover, uh, hard does not mean that you can't understand. It's a mistake when we come across a passage to say, well, uh, there's just some things that we're never going to understand until the age to come. Uh, for sure, we see in part, we prophesy in part, um, but we should be like the Bereans who examined the scriptures daily, every day, and wrestle through these things. Hard means fun, right? Holy Spirit, help me to understand these hard things that are written. Reveal to me the true meaning of the passage, regardless of how it may disrupt my thought patterns. Now, we've already seen that the scoffers, they count the patience of God uh, from creation until the present day as slowness. So how should we count the patience of God with the knowledge that he's just given us, with that one fact that he's just given us, that with the Lord one day is as, is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Peter is giving us the values of the formula. We are to count the days or the units of a thousand years. We can in fact count days as thousand year periods. What days? Well, what other information do we have in the Bible about counting days? The Bible begins with counting days. God purposely counted the days of creation and then separated the six days from the seventh day of rest. This created the seven-day pattern that the world lives by today, thousands of years later. And in doing so, each working week, a counting of his patience is taking place. The seven days are a prophecy of world history, and it is most relevant to our generation. Each day represents a thousand years of history, past or future. Prophetic days can mean years, but they can also mean a thousand years. Um, and that's the context that Peter provides. That's the one fact that Peter provides. And so, for example, in Genesis 2, God told Adam, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, Adam did die at age 930 within that prophetic day, within the thousand years. So, if we count the units of patience, the units of a thousand years, there are roughly four units of a thousand from creation to the cross and almost 2,000 from the cross until today. That makes nearly 6,000 years or six prophetic days, one day remaining. Uh, which day is that? The millennial reign of a thousand years when Jesus returns on the day of the Lord. The millennial reign, which is written of in the book of Revelation, is the seventh day of rest 
that we enter. So um, when we count the patience of the Lord from creation until today, we can see that on God's timeline, on his timeline of redemption, on his calendar, we are very close to the end of the sixth day, which means that the day of the Lord is near. For some of you, this will be a light bulb moment. Uh, For others, you may be thinking, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm with you. Well, there's a biblical principle that proof of a matter should be on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And we find the testimony in other passages that point to the same counting of patience. So, for example, in Genesis 6-3, it says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Now, this verse at first glance is one of those hard texts. It it wasn't 120 years until the flood, so it can't mean that. Uh, People lived over the age of 120 after the flood, so it can't mean the lifespan of the individual. But what if these are 120 specific years or units of time that when counted point to the end of his spirit contending with man? Within God's calendar, uh, the Jubilee cycle is the largest unit at 50 years or, or 49 years, depending on how you calculate the Jubilee year, which is the final year. Uh, but without getting into that, if we count 120 Jubilee cycles, uh, which includes 120 Jubilee years, 120 multiplied by 50 equals 6 thousand years. His spirit will strive or contend with man for six thousand years. That is the limit of his patience. And then the day of the Lord will come with judgment followed by a thousand years of rest and on to eternity. Turn to Hosea. Uh, We see consistency in the prophets also. Hosea contains this incredible prophecy at the end of uh, chapter 5. Listen to this. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. This is clearly a prophecy about Jesus who will come and then carry off and return to heaven until Israel repents. Then, uh, continuing in the following chapter, and remember uh, chapters and verse numbers were not in the original text, in verse 1 and 2, Hosea predicts when he will come back again to the earth. It says this, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. We see this pattern of the third day throughout the scriptures. This isn't a prophecy about Jesus being raised up to life. It is about when he returns and raises us up. So uh, in particular, Israel, this is speaking to you, but but also uh, us. So let's count the days of the prophecy. 
After Jesus goes away and carries off, meaning he ascended to heaven, there will be two days, two units of time, followed by one day, one unit of time. Now, if one day is the same as a thousand to God, according to his patience, that means 2,000 between his first and second coming, followed by a thousand years in which we will live. It makes perfect sense. We are fast approaching that 2,000 year mark, 2,000 years since his first coming. And then at his second coming, those who are alive will be translated into glorified bodies. And those who are asleep in Christ will be raised to life and will get to live in his millennial kingdom rule. In Mark's gospel, at the final words of uh, chapter 8, it says this, he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. So the context is the future coming kingdom. It continues in chapter 9. Some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. This is when the transfiguration happens, which is a preview of the coming glory in the kingdom. Peter was included. He understood that these were a prophetic six days in the lead up and then the seventh day was on the mountain in glory. Exodus 24, on another mountain, we read, The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Both the apostles and Moses met with the Lord on the mountain, face to face, on the seventh day, and lived. The Sabbath, um, the Israelites were given the six-day working week as part of their formal calendar, their religious calendar, followed by uh, a Sabbath to tell them the prophecy each week. Um, they were also given a pattern of seven years within the calendar. The seventh year was uh, the Sabbath year, uh, the Shemitah, which literally means release, teaching them about the six units of time followed by the one unit of time, which gives them rest, uh, their debts are paid off, and so forth. Paul, in his letter to the Hebrews, reveals his understanding of the seventh day, connecting it to the coming kingdom. By quoting Psalm 95 and Genesis 2 in chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews, he labours the point that the Lord's rest, my rest, is only for those that have known his ways, but that there remains a, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Listen to this um, of chapter 4. For we who have believed entered that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken or somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. He explicitly connects the creation pattern and the process with the timeline of history and ultimately the coming kingdom rest. So 
there is this continuity of Old Testament to New Testament of this prophetic pattern that tells the story of God's redemptive timeline. John, uh, we've mentioned, was told to write his vision in the book of Revelation. Um, he penned this uh, in chapter 20 about the Lord's rest. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. It's worth reading uh, the whole of chapter 20. In fact, read, read chapter 19 through to 21 without stopping. Uh, this is not a symbolic thousand years. Um, Isaiah 49, Isaiah points us to creation for understanding the ending of the story, the ending of the narrative. He says this, I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. Think about the first miracle Jesus performed. A Jewish wedding symbolized the messianic kingdom, so it was fitting to demonstrate his identity and the timing of the kingdom at the marriage at Cana. Jesus told the servants to fill six large stone jars that were used for religious purification with water. They would count the jars and fill them one by one. You know the story, the water turned into the finest wine. Jesus, the messianic king, was with them so they got to literally taste the blessings of the coming kingdom. He was saying that he was the creator of all, the giver of life. And it was a demonstration of what he would do in the age to come when he will purify all. Jesus was saying, I am the one who will turn the world from 6,000 years of fallen conditions into Edenic conditions thereafter, with fertile ground to produce the finest wine and you will drink with me in the messianic kingdom feast. The church fathers believe this too. Let me give you some quotes. Barnabas, AD 100. God made in six days the works of his hands. This implieth that the Lord will finish all things in six thousand years. He then references Psalm 90 in the same interpretive manner as Peter. Hippolytus, um, 6,000 years must needs be accomplished in order that the Sabbath may come, the rest, the holy day on which God rested from all his works. For the Sabbath is the type and emblem of the future kingdom of the saints. And again, he goes on to quote the same psalm as Peter about the day being a thousand years. Um, Irenaeus, a summing up of the whole of that apostasy, in other words, counting, a summing up of the patience of the Lord, which has taken place during 6,000 years. For in as many days as this world was made, in so many thousand years shall it be concluded. Commodianus, when 6,000 years are completed, according to God's command, living again in the world for a thousand years. Methodius, for since in six days God made the heaven and the earth and finished the whole world and rested on the seventh day, this world shall be concluded in the seventh thousand years. Lactantius said this, know that the sixth thousand year is not yet completed and that when this number is completed, the consummation must take place. And again, he then references the creation model. Victorinus said this, Sabbath should be observed in the seventh millenary of years. Wherefore, 
To those seven days, the Lord attributed to each a thousand years. The true Sabbath will be in the seventh millenary of years, when Christ with his elect shall reign. Now, some of them miscalculated when the end of the 6,000 years was, but you can see that this was mainstream doctrine. It's often referred to as Kiliism, uh, spelt with a C-H, but it's pronounced Kiliism. This isn't a, a new eschatological framework convenient for the time that we live. Um, it's not exactly convenient to live through the end times under the Antichrist if that's what we are to face shortly. This is how God works. He, he isn't casually hanging around waiting for people to get moving before he can do anything. God has a timeline and exact appointments and everything to the millisecond occurs at the precise moment. And he's kind enough to offer insights into his timeline of redemption. And we should be counting as instructed to do so by Peter. Now, we are not to know the day or the hour, but we can for sure know the season and the general timescale of things. Otherwise, he wouldn't have told us. So we don't date set, but we should study like the good Bereans so that, so that we, we can discern the time that we live, so that we can prepare our hearts for what must take place. Now, before I had even heard of this doctrine, after studying the scriptures alone, I came to this conclusion myself, as, as have many others. It just made complete sense of 6,000 years plus the seventh Sabbath, the, the millennium, the kingdom. And since then, I keep reading the words of scripture that, that affirm that doctrine, that understanding. Why isn't this basic Christian knowledge? I've asked myself that question before. I've listened to a preacher who I have much respect for, a very smart guy, very well educated, and he preached through the book of Revelation from a preterist framework. And he was open enough to allow the congregation to ask questions. And at the end of one of the sessions, um, someone asked this question, what did, what did the early church fathers believe about this, about this talk, topic, about his particular framework? And he said to the effect of, I don't know. Now, if I'm honest, I find that hard to believe. He's a very well-researched man. And I, th I think, I suspect, that he didn't want to admit that they held a radically different position than his. And, and that really, not only did they believe that the, the kingdom was future-focused, but they held a chiliastic position, 6,000 and then 1,000 Sabbath rest. Now, you did have the likes of Oregon, who were um, highly influenced by Plato. He studied at the Platonic Academy of Alexandria. And with this Greek framework, he would super-spiritualize the gospel of the kingdom. And then the likes of Augustine would run with this Platonic framework, remodeling heaven, the kingdom, the biblical hope. And the church today is heavily influenced by this Greek philosophy, particularly in the UK. Most of us hold an amillennial position, as I've said, spiritualizing the millennium uh, or a post-millennial position where the, millennia, the millennium has already passed or we're currently living in that age. It is like a virus in the church. In counting the patients, we should be pre-millennialists. We are living before the seventh millennium that will soon arrive. Why? Because the Old and New Testaments teach this. The apostles taught this. And while not scripture, the church fathers were in agreement.
Peter warns us of losing our apostolic foundations. He says this in verse 17, you therefore beloved, knowing this beforehand. In other words, remember we discussed this around the table, breaking bread in each other's homes. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Lawless people, not obviously lawless people. They may be smartly dressed, they may be sophisticated, they may dwell in affluent areas, they could be scholarly. Do not get carried away with their errors. If a new wind of doctrine comes along, do not get carried away. Today, we're told that we should judge based on our emotions of of empathy and compassion. Stand firm on the scriptures. Do not get carried away. Do not get carried away with the lawless frameworks of the world. Your stability is in Christ, not the lawless, worldly version of Christ, not the cherry-picked, this-feels-good Christ, the Christ that is found throughout the whole counsel of God. Take care that you not get carried away. Because if you don't take care, before you know it, you are away with the error of lawless and you will count his patience as slowness. Remember, Peter says, the predictions of the holy prophets. The day of the Lord is coming with a roar. Don't let it come as a thief. At peace, at peace, count the patience of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you will grow in the grace and knowledge of him. I'll let Peter have the last word as he ends his letter. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. I'm Stephen Buckley. To hear more, visit myking.com.